Hello, and welcome to The Broad Chronicles, a women's history podcast celebrating the lives and stories of remarkable women in the world. I'm Kayla, and this time we're completing the coverage of the life of Queen Victoria. Now, we're already balls deep in the life of Victoria so far, so if you have not listened to parts one or two, you're going to be probably very lost at this point. However, if you're like me and you like to play with fire, you're in good company. I will briefly recap what we've already talked about so far. In the last episode, Victoria ascended the throne upon the death of her uncle, King William IV, and met her first prime minister, Lord Melbourne, who she became very close to, sometimes to the point that the media referred to her as, quote, Mrs. Melbourne. Within the first years of her reign, Victoria was at the center of two major scandals, the Hastings Affair and the Bedchamber Crisis. In the Hastings Affair, she accused one of her mother's ladies-in-waiting, Lady Flora Hastings, of being pregnant out of wedlock with none other than her former archenemy, John Conroy. It was not a good look for Victoria when it came out that Lady Flora was not only innocent, but also dying of cancer. In the Bedchamber Crisis, Victoria ran into a bit of trouble due to her attachment to Lord Melbourne. When the new Prime Minister, Robert Peel, a Tory, took office, it was customary for him to expect to replace Victoria's wig-leaning ladies-in-waiting with ladies supportive to his cause. Victoria refused, and Peel ultimately resigned as Prime Minister. This was scandalous because Victoria, as a constitutional monarch, was expected to refrain from showing political opinions or leanings. As a side note, just because that's what she was expected to do does not mean that's what Victoria actually did. Real soon after this, Victoria married her cousin, Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. The pair had a relatively happy marriage. Victoria was strongly devoted to her husband, and they had nine children together, all of whom, despite the odds of this time period, survived to adulthood. Albert was a hard-working and ambitious man, which was to his advantage throughout his wife's many pregnancies. He put into place several reforms in the running of the royal household, designed and oversaw the construction of the residences of Balmoral Castle and Osborne House, and launched the Great Exhibition of 1851. This phase of Victoria's reign also included changes such as the Coal Mine Act, the Irish Potato Famine, the Crimean War, and yet another French Revolution. On a personal note, Victoria's mother died in the spring of 1861, leaving her completely desolate. Meanwhile, the first of her children, Vicky, married Prince Frederick William of Prussia, while their oldest son, Prince Bertie, liked to live on the wild side. This caused great distress to both Victoria and Albert, who went on to chastise his son over this behavior. Upon his return from his visit to chastise his son for his behavior and his role in the monarchy, Albert fell gravely ill. It soon became apparent that his condition was critical, and he ultimately succumbed to his illness in December of 1861, right before Christmas. Victoria became a widow at the ripe old age of 42. And so, at the dawn of 1862, we return to the life of Victoria. I feel like I should include a disclaimer here that whenever something traumatic or sad happens in my own life, I tend to deal with it by laughing about it because if we 
Don't laugh about it. We'll cry about it. So please don't think I'm being insensitive to Victoria's plight at having lost her husband. But I may feel the need to make light of it in a couple of spots because it just is genuinely devastating how, um, how sad she got. So when we pick up with Victoria, she's not taking things well. Remember, she was completely devastated after the death of her mother earlier in that year. And not only that, it really threw a rock in her relationship with her son. She blamed Bertie for the death of her husband because she saw it as since Albert had to go out and chase Bertie down and chastise him for his behavior, that his father got sick and died, and that was directly her son's fault. Victoria was even quoted as saying that he, being Albert, had been killed by that dreadful business concerning their son. And she had a pretty extreme response to the loss of her husband. For instance, she wore black for the rest of her life. She had mementos made out of his hair, which was a very popular custom during Victorian times to have like clippings of hair and turn them into jewelry or picture frames or works of art, depending on how much money and how much hair you could get. She also kept the room where he died looking exactly like it was after he died. Now, keeping in mind, it is 1862 and Victoria lives until 1901. Now, my math doesn't math very well, but that's something like 48 years. She had fresh water laid out for him to shave with every single day and Every night she had their pillows strewn with fresh flowers. She even required that the court and the entire nation enter two years of deep mourning. That basically means everybody dressed in black all the time. Even though Albert was gone, his influence and importance would loom over Victoria for the rest of her life in some fashion. She even refused to appear in public for a decade after his death. This got to a point where the nation started to question what the point of having a monarchy was, especially since they were paying taxes for her to basically hide out in her mansion and not do any work. So during this time, republicanism is going to see another increase in popularity. And I feel like this is a pattern that we've kind of already established throughout Victoria's reign where she does something and then the people are like, mm, maybe we don't need a queen. And then something else happens and they're like, oh yeah, we forgot that we love her so much. But a lot of people got really salty with her during this time. Someone even went so far as to post a notice reading these commanding premises to be let or sold in consequence of the late occupants declining business on the gates of Buckingham Palace in 1864. Her behavior earns her the nickname the Widow of Windsor. I feel like it should also be noted here, she did continue to perform some of her official duties. They just mostly happened from the seclusion of her royal residences rather than appearing in public or making speeches. Like, she still met with her prime minister, she still sent correspondence, but she just did not go out in public at this time. But the other thing we have to remember is that her family life is going to continue. They have nine children, only one of whom just got married. 
and all nine of them are going to get married. So right here, we're going to stop and cover three of the first four. So in the last episode, we talked about the marriage of Princess Victoria to Prince Frederick William of Prussia, who would later become the Emperor of Germany, and the birth of her first son, Wilhelm. She also had three more sons and four more daughters with her husband. We also hinted at the match between Bertie and Alexandra of Denmark. That didn't happen at the end of the last episode, but I'm going in order that the kids got married. So next, after Princess Victoria, was Princess Alice. She was the third oldest and the second daughter. So prior to the death of her father, she became engaged to Prince Louis of Hesse. He came to visit in 1860, and by April of 1861, the two were engaged after they received permission from Alice's parents, i.e. Albert and Victoria. But between the engagement and when the actual wedding took place, her dad died. So she and Louis had a much smaller affair than they probably would have otherwise. They were actually married in the dining room of Osborne House on July 1st, 1862. Um, Victoria had the room converted to a mini chapel of sorts so that she could be present, but she was not going out in public for this. And she even had her sons form a wall, like a, a wall of people in front of her so that she could be in the room, but nobody could see her. The bride wore white, but her mother required that she have on black clothes before the wedding and black clothes after the wedding, but she could wear a white dress to her wedding. They had their first child in April of 1863. In total, they had seven children, one of whom included Empress Alexandra of Russia, who would be the mother of Anastasia Romanov. Possibly a subject for a future episode. The next of the kids to go down the aisle was Bertie. He and Alexandra of Denmark were proposed as a match by his older sister, Vicky. Remember, he was kind of getting into, into his trouble, and his dad was like, you should probably marry him off. And Vicky had been keeping an eye out on the available Protestant princesses for a wife, and Alexandra was one of the ones she suggested. They are engaged in September of 1862, and then they marry by March of 1863. They got along pretty well. She was pretty devoted to him, but he continued philandering all throughout his marriage. Several mistresses like to go out and have a good time, and Alex just kind of put up with it. They ended up having six children total, five of whom survived to adulthood. And while things between Victoria and Bertie seemed to improve during the years after his marriage, she would continually refuse to include him on having any official role in the government. And the last child out of the first set that will get married is Princess Helena. She became engaged in December of 1865 to Prince Christian of Schleswig-Holstein. They were married on July 5th of 1866, and this pair had six children, four of whom survived to adulthood. 
Not long after Albert's death, Victoria continued the trend of finding a strong man that would take care of her. So remember, we started with Lord Melbourne when she was 18 and fresh on the throne and had no idea what she was doing. And then she kind of gets a handle on things, gets into some scandals and decides to get married. So Melbourne is kind of replaced with Albert. Albert was there throughout the formative and foundational years of her very long reign. He was her lover, her husband, her counsel, and the father of her children. His death left a really large gap in her life that remained empty during the first few years of her widowhood. And I personally think this was due to the fact that she was so far gone into her grief that she just didn't notice. But there was a man who would step into the role of her trusted male companion. He was present during the last few years of her marriage with Albert. But within a few years of his death, he would become invaluable to her. And his name was John Brown. So we're just going to cover John Brown in his entirety here. He's present throughout the next almost two decades of Victoria's life as a major relationship and figure in her private life to the point where we are still debating today what exactly the nature of their relationship was but I will leave you to judge that on your own. So, John Brown is Scottish. He's born in Aberdeenshire in Scotland in 1828. As a young man, he worked at Balmoral Castle as an outdoor servant, or a ghillie, I believe it's pronounced. But by 1851, he had received a promotion to, quote, the leader of the Queen's Pony. On the death of Albert in 1861, John Brown's role expanded significantly in the Queen's life. In 1864, he was given the title of the Queen's Highland Servant. Rumors began circulating about the nature of their relationship at this point, with many people suspecting that they are romantically involved. At the spring exhibition of the Royal Academy in 1867, a portrait of Queen Victoria on horseback was debuted. And in the portrait, John Brown is visible, and this caused a huge scandal. People start referring to Victoria as Mrs. Brown, but she has entered her IDGAF phase. She's going to love who she loves and screw everybody else. She does not care. He's allowed a certain amount of frankness that others weren't often permitted and I'm talking like even her children and her other ministers are are not allowed to speak to her like that. Her children and ministers are not impressed by the elevated nature of his status. They don't like they don't like it at all. Again, the nature of their relationship is unclear from most of the records left behind. Victoria's daughter Beatrice and we're going to talk about this again closer to the end of the episode, um, heavily edited her mother's journals upon her mother's death. And we know that they were close. Victoria even refers to him as her best friend at one point. But we just don't know how far the relationship went. We're not saying it's not possible. We're just, we don't know. She did write a book called Leaves of the Journal of Our Lives in the Highlands in which John Brown features prominently, there was also a sequel to this book that she published. 
He was present in the life of Victoria for 18 years, almost the same amount of time that Albert was alive. They were married for nearly 20 years. And when John Brown died, Victoria responded in much the same way she had upon the death of Albert, as far as the same amount of devotion was concerned. Um, She also went as far as to write a draft of, of a document talking about the nature of their relationship and how well they got along, but she was discouraged from publishing it because people thought it would be taken the wrong way, and that manuscript was ultimately destroyed. So, so many questions that were answered are just lost to history. So we are going to rewind just a little bit and talk about Victoria coming back into the public sphere and her reemergence as a public figure. It's a slow one. As previously mentioned, it took her nearly a decade before she began making regular public appearances. She did make an appearance at the state opening of Parliament for the first time since Albert's death in 1866, so nearly five years later. She made sure to inform the Prime Minister at the time, Lord Russell, that it was a very severe trial for her to perform this particular duty. She opened Parliament again the next year in 1867, but for the remainder of her time on the throne, she would only open Parliament seven times, and she would not read her own speech speech again. She would leave that mostly to the Lord Chancellor. In 1868, Benjamin Disraeli becomes Prime Minister, and he has a knack for flattering Victoria. He's noted as saying something along the lines of, you have to lay it on with a trowel, lay on flattery with a trowel when dealing with royalty, and his approach 100% works. He was only in office for a few months before being ousted in favor of William Gladstone, who Victoria did not like as much. And we're still kind of in the period right now of Victoria hiding out whenever she can, but by the beginning of the 1870s, things start to come to a head. The Prime Minister and her children were all starting to notice it. Something had to be done to get her out of the house and get her out in front of everyone again. So what's going on during this time? Well, the Second French Empire fell during the Franco-Prussian War, which lasted from July of 1870 to January of 1871. And basically what this signals to the rest of Europe, and to Britain included, that republics could take over and... This establishment of the Third French Republic, and this is going to be the one that lasts right up until the beginning of World War II, um, the establishment of a republic in France fuels fires of republicanism in Britain. Basically, why do we need a queen? What is she doing for us? This question keeps coming up. So between 1871 and 1874, 85 republican clubs were founded in Britain. They protested the, quote, expensiveness and uselessness of the monarchy and Bertie's, quote, immoral example. The prime minister even had this to say, the queen is invisible and the prince of Wales is not respected. But I think this quote from Julia Baird in her book, Victoria the Queen, kind of sums it up nicely. The economy was weak. The royals were overpaid, and France had become a republic in 1870. Why shouldn't Britain follow suit? So in 
1870, a Republican rally takes place in Trafalgar Square, where Victoria's removal was called for by several radical MPs, and they also got up and made speeches about Victoria. And judging by my context clues, they were probably not very nice speeches. Things were at a head about to boil over when several major things happened at about the same time. So the first one, Victoria gets seriously ill in 1871. She had an abscess that was lanced and treated with Joseph Lister's new carbolic acid, and she recovered from this illness. Then, in November of 1871, while things are still pretty serious, the Prince of Wales falls seriously ill with typhoid fever. Please keep in mind, this is the disease that is believed to have killed Prince Albert 10 years prior. And this does a a few things. First of all, the nation is shocked. Remember, Bertie is not very old at this point, and he falls seriously ill. Victoria kind of kicks it into gear as far as her mommy brain goes and realizes, my son, the heir to the throne, is gravely ill, and I nearly lost his father in the same way. So I'm betting there was some psychological um, elements at play here and a huge amount of guilt. She's like, dang, I treated him like crap for the last 10 years because of how his father died, and now I'm about to lose him the same way. Telegrams start pouring in. Ministers are saying prayers for his recovery in church. Everyone is waiting with bated breath to see if the Prince of Wales will recover, and he does miraculously recover from this illness. Victoria is so relieved that she held a service of thanksgiving in St. Paul's Cathedral for her and the Prince of Wales in February of 1872. This included the two of them riding in a carriage through the streets together, listening to the cheers of the crowd. And two days after this service, Victoria is shot at yet again and survives. She survives every assassination attempt. John Brown is the person who manages to get the shooter, and he has him by the throat and manages to get him to drop the pistol. This recovers Victoria's popularity even further. And kind of while all of this is going on, the next set of kids have started to get married. So in these intervening years, we're just going to talk about the last five to get married right here. Victoria and Albert had this vision of their children making impressive matches and alliances for the British Empire throughout continental Europe, largely through marriage, and for the most part, this vision came true. Between Helena and the next sibling to get married, there's about a five-year gap. So we pick up with Princess Louise. Several royal princes in Europe were suggested, but Louise was not fond of the idea of marrying a royal prince. So Louise basically puts her foot down and refuses to marry a foreign prince. In fact, she's like, I'm going to marry John Campbell, the Marquess of Lorne, who is the heir apparent to the Duke of Argyle. Her brother, Bertie, was opposed to this match, but surprisingly, the queen squashes all of the opposition. She allows them to become engaged in October of 1870, and the pair marries in March of 1871, but they ultimately end up having no children. 
they end up serving in Canada as the governor general and the viceregal consort. Louise is going to be followed by her brother, Prince Alfred, who is the second son of Victoria and Albert. He is also second in line to the throne at this point. Initial matches that are suggested are Dagmar, the sister of Princess Alexandra, and Grand Duchess Olga Konstantinovna of Russia, but eventually the Grand Duchess Maria Alexandrovna of Russia catches his eye. The two of them are married on January of 1874, and they have five children. After Prince Alfred is Prince Arthur, and he marries Princess Louise Margaret of Prussia in March of 1879. She was one of Vicky's husband's cousins, and the pair of them end up having three children. Next up is Leopold. He had some extenuating circumstances to finding a wife, so this is where we are going to discuss hemophilia. Leopold was a hemophiliac, which was likely due to the fact that his parents were first cousins or the fact that Victoria's father was over the age of 50 when she was born, and there is a higher occurrence of hemophilia in the children of older fathers. We may never know. Additionally, Victoria was really attached, like obsessively attached to her younger children and wanted to keep him close to home because she knew with his condition, finding a wife would be difficult. Like his other siblings, several potential spouses are considered, but finally Princess Helena Frederica of Waldeck Piermont was selected. I have no idea where that is, and I didn't take the time to look it up. The pair marry in April of 1882, and they had a very happy but brief marriage. They had two children. The first one was Princess Alice, who was born while her father was alive, but unfortunately, um, Leopold suffered a cerebral aneurysm while his wife was pregnant with their second child, and he died before his son, Prince Charles Edward, was born. And the last of Victoria's children to get married, the last of her kids, period, is Princess Beatrice. Now, the marriage of Beatrice ended up being a huge ordeal because Queen Victoria was dead set against Beatrice getting married at all. She had in her head the scheme of Beatrice staying at home and taking care of her for the rest of her life and in her old age, which was kind of a duty expected of younger or youngest daughters at the time, but Beatrice was very much like her brother Leopold, and he was feeling crushed by the weight of his mother's affection, and she too wanted wanted out and saw marriage as the way to go. So the first of her potential suitors was the Prince Imperial of France, Louis Napoleon, but unfortunately he died before anything could come of that. He fought in the Anglo-Zulu Wars. Beatrice was actually quite upset about his death. The next one up on the list of suggestions was her sister's widower, Louis IV, the Grand Duke of Hesse, but this was going to be a no-go. It was not allowed by the church for a sister to marry her deceased sister's spouse. Um, Bertie 
her brother was weirdly gung-ho for this match to take place. I guess not weirdly, like politically he saw the benefit of it, but he was so invested that he was willing to push through a bill in Parliament to allow for the marriage to take place. Beatrice wasn't having any of it. The next suitor on the list was Louis of Battenberg, but some hijinks ensued in the two of them making a match, and he actually ended up marrying her niece. So this would be her oldest sister's daughter, I believe. And she went to their wedding, and that is where she met Louis's brother, Henry. She came home and announced her intention to marry Henry to her mother, and Victoria was not thrilled by this at all. But ultimately, the pair of them promised to remain close to the queen and stay in the United Kingdom, and she gave them permission to get married, which they did in July of 1885, and they went on to have three children. Their descendants include the monarchs of Spain. Fun fact. I feel like we're about to enter a very uncomfortable place in Victoria's reign as far as colonialism and colonization goes. Um, and that begins with Victoria's relationship with India. The British relationship with India reached an interesting position under Victoria's reign. In 1857, the Indian Rebellion broke out and that resulted in the end of the British East India Company's control over India. The company is dissolved and all of its possessions came under the direct control of the British crown. As I have said in previous podcast episodes, we are not going to get into the details of this rebellion, but suffice it to say it resulted in violence from both the British colonizers and the Indian people and Victoria did condemn the use of violence by both sides, although she probably should have, like, not been invading land that didn't belong to her to begin with. But all the territories and protectorates under the company's rule became official possessions of the British Empire under the Government of India Act of 1858. Then we fast forward to 1876, and Benjamin Disraeli successfully passes the Royal Titles Act of 1876. This does a couple things. It bestows the title of Empress of India upon Victoria, and the new title for Victoria is declared in the Delhi Durbar on January 1st of 1877. Now, the period of the 1870s, specifically the late 1870s, is particularly active for Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli and the Tory party. We have already discussed the Royal Titles Act of 1876 and a little earlier, right after his return to power in 1874, he managed to also have the Public Worship Regulation Act of 1874 passed. This law removed all Catholic rituals from services performed in the Church of England Victoria was a big supporter of this law because she, among many other opinions she had on the matter, she liked the shorter services. Then, between April of 1877 and February of 1878, Victoria was not happy with Disraeli's lack of action against Russia in the Russo-Turkish War. She threatened to abdicate no less than five times over 
his action or lack of action, but ultimately her threats didn't have much of an impact, and the conclusion of the Congress of Berlin led to the Treaty of Berlin. And without jumping into too much detail, the Congress of Berlin, which resulted in the Treaty of Berlin, shifted the political and geographical relationships in such a way in Eastern and Mediterranean Europe that their results would have a lasting impact on events that directly led to World War I. I'm going to pause our story right here to just talk about this for a second. We discussed the marriages of Victoria's children and how making various alliances between countries throughout Europe and to a further extent her grandchildren and great-grandchildren's relationships would have a major impact on the outcome of foreign relations and international relations in Europe, but it is truly astounding to me how all of the string pulling that her and Albert did in orchestrating all of these matches for their children helped to pave the way for what would become World War One. And while we're on uncomfortable topics about foreign relations and international policy, let's talk about the Queen, Prime Minister Disraeli, and colonial expansion. So Disraeli's foreign policy focused very much on expanding British interests around the globe, which Victoria was very much a fan of. The Wikipedia article on Queen Victoria states that, quote, Victoria saw the expansion of the British Empire as civilized and benign, protecting native peoples from more aggressive powers or cruel rulers. And it also quotes her as stating, it is not our custom to annex countries unless we are obliged and forced to do so. Frankly, there are many who will tell you that because of her lack of action, which may have been in her sphere of authority, she was complicit in the mistreatment, brutalization, and oppression of Native peoples all over the world. And the more I study and the more I learn, I tend to fall into that camp. It's very aggravating to see people in positions of power and authority not using their power for things that are right and are good. For example, many treaties between First Nations peoples in Canada and the Crown allowed for the theft of Native lands, the establishment of residential schools, and the attempted erasure of Indigenous cultures in Canada. I'm not saying that this didn't happen also in America, because it very much did, and I live in the United States, but... The scope of this episode is the life and impact of Queen Victoria, so that is where we will be focusing. And with the establishment of these residential schools and other attempts at erasure, um, we see things like children being pulled from their families and sent to these institutions. And these institutions existed as a systematic attempt to assimilate and Anglicanize these children into white society. Um, These students suffered brutally at the hands of those in charge of the schools. Many children would die or go missing at these schools. And to this day, there are still conversations and hard feelings about this subject that I can't even begin to touch on because I, it's not my lived experience. 
then if we shift away from that, we can discuss the matter of Sarah Forbes Bonetta, a young African girl who was brought to the United Kingdom from Africa. Basically, her home tribe had been defeated by King Gezo of Dahomey, and she was given by him as a gift to Captain Forbes, and then became the godchild of the queen, and the queen saw her several times throughout her life and was very involved in her British upbringing. Even though slavery had been outlawed in the British Empire in 1838, early in Victoria's reign, their efforts to expand their influence on the African continent continued, and Sarah was brought back to England, and it probably should be noted that Sarah was a name that her captors gave her. Um, We probably will never know what her actual name was. She ultimately ended up marrying a man of West Indian descent, so that would be a person of African descent brought to the Caribbean um, whose ancestors were slaves. And as a matter of fact, the parents of Sarah's husband would be formerly enslaved. And she also ended up giving birth to a daughter that she named Victoria because Victoria was also the godmother of her daughter. There are many other children that have a similar story to this. Sarah was part of a group of colonial godchildren the queen had, and they were put to use to make the colonial image of the queen as a a beneficent and motherly symbol of colonial goodwill and improvement. Um, This is definitely a part of her reign that I'm, it gives me the icks. But ultimately, Disraeli would lose the general election of 1880, and He would pass away the next year, and the whole saga of colonialism and expansion can be its own podcast, but I do think it is important to hold space for and honor those who were affected or continue to be affected by all of these types of events. And I'm not really sure of how to segue from a dark and emotionally charged section like that into something happy, like Victoria's Golden and Diamond Jubilees, but here we go. The Jubilees of Victoria. She would celebrate two major milestones in her time on the throne, and these would be her Golden and Diamond Jubilees. So a Golden Jubilee is the celebration of 50 years on the throne. The Diamond Jubilee is the celebration of 60 years on the throne. The Golden Jubilee was held on June 20th, 1887, to June 23rd, 1887, and was the anniversary of her 50th year on the throne. And widespread celebration took place throughout the empire. She started the day with breakfast under the trees at Frogmore Cottage, where Albert was currently buried. She then traveled to Buckingham Palace for lunch, and then that was followed by a banquet in the evening, where 50 foreign kings and princes were invited along with the governing heads of British overseas colonies. The next day, she rode in a procession to Westminster Abbey through the streets of London. A service of Thanksgiving was held in her honor, and during the service, a ray of sunlight fell through a window and onto Victoria's head, which Queen Liliuokalani noted was a, quote, show of divine favor on the queen. She then returned to the palace where she made an appearance on the balcony to cheering crowds. So we were doing balcony appearances as far back as the 1880s. 
Then that evening, she distributed brooches made especially for the Jubilee to her family members and ended a day with a banquet and fireworks. On June 22nd, she visited her aunt, the Duchess of Cambridge, and then attended a party at Hyde Park with 26,000 school children. That is more people than live in my hometown. I cannot imagine an entire park with that many children present. And just, just so you're aware, each of the children received a commemorative mug with milk in it. And they also received a meal as well. On June 23rd, 1887, she engaged two Indian Muslim men as waiters, one of whom was named Abdul Karim. She was so impressed with him that she promoted him to Munshi, and he began teaching her the Urdu language. Her family and staff were not very happy with his presence in her life. This is going to be a repeat performance of the John Brown episode, just minus the speculation of a romance between the two. And she even went so far as to tell them that they were being prejudiced against Kareem and they needed to be quiet. Kareem would remain in her service until her death when he received a pension and left the country. So there's a little intervening period between her jubilees of about 10 years. And there are a few events of note that happen here. In 1888, the Princess Royal became the German Empress, but her husband died a little over three months into his reign. So Victoria's grandson, Wilhelm, became Kaiser Wilhelm II upon the death of his father. And again, yes, that Kaiser. Gladstone returned to power in the general election of 1892. He retired in 1894 and was replaced by Lord Rosebery. He didn't do so hot of a job, and then he was replaced by Lord Salisbury, who remained Prime Minister until Victoria's death. So, Victoria hits her period as Britain's longest reigning monarch until she's overthrown in 2015. But, until September 23rd of 1896, Britain's longest reigning monarch was Victoria's grandfather, George III. But on that day, she replaced him as Britain's longest reigning monarch. She requested that all celebrations of this milestone be put off until the following summer to coincide with her Diamond Jubilee, which would take place the next year. So the Diamond Jubilee celebrated the 60th anniversary of her reign. The prime ministers of all self-governing dominions in the British Empire were invited but not the heads of state, because there was a fear that, if Victoria's grandson Wilhelm II came, he would cause some drama. I feel like more people should have taken note of that. Her procession took place on June 22, 1897. It followed a route of six miles through London and included troops from all over the empire. They did pause for a service of Thanksgiving outside of St. Paul's Cathedral, so the Queen would not have to get out of her carriage because at this point she was suffering with some mobility issues and there was um, a fear that she could hurt herself trying to climb up the stairs. The Diamond Jubilee is going to be the last major event that takes place in Victoria's life because at this point she's going to be on a downward decline. 
Victoria liked to travel to the mainland of Europe for vacation, but by about April of 1900, this didn't seem like a great idea because of the ongoing Boer War. She decided to visit Ireland for the first time that year instead, since 1861. Then, in July of 1900, her son Alfred died unexpectedly. She was absolutely devastated, stating, Oh God, my poor darling Affie gone too. And even writing in her journal, it is a horrible year, nothing but sadness and horrors of one kind or another. By the latter half of 1900, Victoria's health is declining. Um, We're going to rewind back to 1883 and talk about the day she fell down the stairs at Windsor. This left her recovering until July of that year. She fell in March and she was basically lame, unable to walk until July of that year, and she suffered from rheumatism for the rest of her life. It made it very difficult for her to move. By November of 1900, her physician, Dr. Reed, noted that she looked emaciated and had difficulty sleeping and resting, so he gave her opium-based Dover's powder to help her sleep. Her family initially is not aware of how poor her condition is, including her son and heir, Bertie. In December, she decided she was going to travel to Osborne for Christmas like she did every other year. Um, Victoria was a woman with a healthy appetite, and it should have been apparent that something was wrong because she was not able to or would not eat because she was suffering from a poor appetite. And on top of that, she's not able to see very well because her eyes are clouded with cataracts and her rheumatism from her fall basically is keeping her from walking. I read some other more in-depth details in one of the books that I consulted for my research and for the sake of dignity we're just not going to talk about the other internal issues she was having but suffice it to say ouch. Dr. Reed ended up sending a telegram to Kaiser Wilhelm secretly, who asked to be kept informed of his grandmother's condition, and even though everyone was bent on keeping Bertie from knowing what was going on, Elena is the one that relents and sends Bertie a telegram that he needs to arrive as well. Her surviving children begin to flock to her side, except for Vicky, who was seriously ill with cancer herself and unable to travel at this time. Victoria ended up passing away on January 22nd, 1901. She was held by her grandson, and her son Edward VII was the person who closed her eyes upon her passing. So, Victoria's funeral. She left very specific instructions for what should happen upon um, her death. Um, In 1897, she wrote her will and left very detailed instructions. She wanted to have a military funeral because she was the head of the army and the daughter of a soldier. On January 25th, her sons Edward and Arthur and her grandson Wilhelm helped to put her in the coffin. She was dressed in all white and wore her wedding veil. And she had the request for several... Um, significant items to be placed in her coffin with her. Some of them, her children, were not allowed to see. So, she requested that one of Albert's dressing gowns be placed by her side, along with a plaster cast that she had made of his hands. 
She also requested that photos of her husband, her children, and her grandchildren be placed in the coffins with her. She requested five rings that belonged to Albert and one each that belonged to her mother, her sister Feodora, her daughters Louise and Beatrice, and a shawl made by her daughter Alice. She also had a lock of John Brown's hair and a picture of him placed in her left hand, but concealed from view with flowers. She also had John Brown's mother's wedding ring placed on one of her fingers, but we don't know which finger. Her coffin was draped in white and placed on a gun carriage and taken to the train station. Her funeral was held on February 2, 1901 in St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. She was laid to rest besides Albert in the Royal Mausoleum at Frogmore. She was 81 years old at the time of her death, having ruled the United Kingdom for 63 years. So, the aftermath of Victoria's death. Probably the biggest thing was what happened to her journals. Victoria kept a dedicated journal from July of 1832 until her death. Her daughter Beatrice was tasked with being her literary executor. Beatrice sat down and transcribed and edited every single one of her mother's journals from the ascension to the throne onward, and she destroyed the original copies. And I mean, she would leave out sections from stuff. She would cut stuff out entirely. If her mother had, like, painted pictures or drawn something, she would cut the pictures out and paste them into the new diary. But as she finished the or as she finished transcribing them, she would toss them in the fire. However, there was a second set of transcribed diaries from 1832 to 1861 that still existed, made by her secretary, Lord Esher, that Beatrice did not get her hands on. So we do have some originals for about a, uh, a 29 or 30 year period right there. Victoria's reign shaped the modern constitutional monarchy, seeing it become more symbolic than political. 34 of Victoria and Albert's 42 grandchildren survived to adulthood. And we discussed this already, but Victoria was a carrier for the gene that causes hemophilia. Her son Leopold was afflicted with the condition, and her daughters and granddaughters spread the disease throughout their genetic descendants. I think the most famous incident that most people would know of was the Zarevich Alexei being a car- having hemophilia, his mother Alexandra being the carrier of the gene that she inherited from her mother Alice, who was then the daughter of Queen Victoria as well. And then probably her most significant and lasting impact is the fact that she has an entire area of history named in her honor. Well, dear listeners, that will conclude our three-part coverage of the life of Queen Victoria. Much like our recently departed Queen Elizabeth II, many people grew up in a time not knowing another monarch and found themselves on the precipice of major world change. In the early 20th century, that meant the dawn of women's suffrage, the First World War, the Roaring Twenties, and so much more. Victoria lent her name to a period, leaving an indelible mark on Western culture and the face of Europe. To this day, her descendants sit on the thrones of the United Kingdom, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, 
and Spain. And now at this point in the show, I would like to discuss the resources that I consulted for this episode. And there is quite a bit of a longer list this time because there's just more out there about Victoria in the media. So, as I said in the Charlotte of Wales episode, I do consult Wikipedia for outline and broad strokes purposes, but I supplement with other resources. As far as websites I consulted, here is a list. So from Wikipedia, I specifically looked at the following articles. Victoria of the United Kingdom. Each of the articles about her children, there are nine of them. I'm not going to list every single one here. The article on her Golden Jubilee and the article on the Indian Rebellion of 1857. I also consulted Encyclopedia Britannica's Victoria article and the Hanover section on englishmonarchs.co.uk. As far as videos and movies I consulted, there is a fairly significant list. There's even more than I've listed here, but these are just the ones that I, I have seen on a regular basis and consulted with. The channel The People Profiles on YouTube has a documentary called Queen Victoria and the Victorian Era. Lindsay Holiday has a great video on Queen Victoria. She does several videos on Queen Victoria, but she has one specifically about her reign. Um, Lindsay also has a podcast called History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, and that is the name of her YouTube channel. She has a lot of great information. I couldn't recommend her enough. The Life of Queen Victoria, hosted by Lucy Worsley. Victoria and Albert, The Royal Wedding, hosted by Lucy Worsley. This is available on the state in the States on PBS. I think it was a BBC production. There is the movie The Young Victoria, starring Emily Blunt as Queen Victoria. This one came out in 2009. The series Victoria, that was produced by the BBC and Masterpiece Classic. The books I consulted. There is two fiction novels that I have read about Victoria that I very much enjoyed. The first one being Victoria, May Blossom of Britannia from the Royal Diary series written by Anna Kerwin. It's a fictional journal from the perspective of an 11 to about 13-year-old Victoria. There is the book Victoria by Daisy Goodwin. This is the book that serves as the basis of the series on PBS, on Masterpiece and the BBC. There is the biography Victoria the Queen by Julia Baird. There is the book Victoria's Daughters by Gerald M. Packard. I listened to the audiobook on Audible. And Birdie, A Life of Edward VII by Jane Ridley. Again, I also listened to it on Audible. Thank you so much for joining me on my rather ambitious coverage of the life of Queen Victoria. I enjoyed taking a deep dive and I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can find The Broad Chronicles on Instagram at The Broad Chronicles Pod, which is where I do most of my posting, or you can email the show at the address thebroadchronicles at gmail.com. If you want to show the show some love, please rate, review, and leave the maximum amount of stars that you can on whatever podcatcher you fancy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.